As you were here last Sunday uh, for service, you heard a sermon by Pastor Antonio that speaks of the absolution of sin and the reading of the gospel. And praise God that we have the opportunity to not just hear the gospel uh, visibly, or rather see the gospel visibly before us, that is in the that is in the ministering of the Lord's Supper, uh, but also we get to hear of the gospel and God pronouncing upon our our lives uh, grace and peace. And if you haven't noticed, saints, in many ways, um, the entire service is God pronouncing grace and peace onto us. At the, at the absolution, He pronounces grace and peace unto us. At the the benediction, He pronounces grace and peace onto us. At uh, God's response, or rather, um, our, our pleading to Him and, and Him uh, coming to us and telling us, reminding us uh, that we uh, can come to Him with boldness, uh, He pronounces to us grace and peace. So today, we want to turn our attention to our time in worship that when we hear the law read, but also corporately ask the Lord to forgive us of our sins. Again, Pastor Antonio already preached a sermon on the law and the Christian's relation to the law. And so what we're going to do today is how the law fits within our corporate worship service. And again, asking the question of why do we read the law in a corporate worship service, but also why do we ask for forgiveness of sins? What's the point of asking the forgiveness of sins and also the benefit of asking for, corporately rather, asking for the forgiveness of sins? When you consider what churches do nowadays in a worship service, the law of God is rarely read. In fact, if there's any mention of the law of God, it's usually the pastor or the preacher mentioning how we are no longer under the law, but rather we are freely accepted uh, in Christ. In fact, the law of God is not something that is to be our roadmap to holiness, but rather the law is usually left and, and seen in a very negative light. And saints, just as it's a blessing for us to hear the gospel preached, seen, heard, uh, every single worship service it is also a blessing for us to hear the law. It's a blessing for us to hear of God's holy commandments and what He requires of us. So there's going to be a few questions I'm going to ask and then answer. Number one, who has God commanded to read the Scriptures in corporate worship? Who has God commanded to read the Scriptures in corporate worship? Now, off, just hearing that question might sound a little bit weird to you. Who has God required or commanded to read the Scriptures but mind you, this caveat at the end must be taken seriously in corporate worship. Not in your private time of worship. Not in your time of uh, family worship, but in corporate worship. When the saints gather together, who is to read the Scriptures? Again, this might seem off-putting because, number one, you might have not considered that question before, but also from our own experience, Usually, um, if you go to a church for longer than a year, uh, someone will probably ask you, hey, do you want to read the Scriptures next Sunday? 
or you have a myriad of people that read the scriptures on a Sunday morning worship service. But saints, when we read the scriptures, but also when we consider our Reformed tradition, we see that God has given the elder or the minister alone the specific task to read the scriptures to the congregation. Again, according to the Word of God, but also to our Reformed tradition that supplements the Word of God nicely, God has given the elder or minister the specific task to read the scriptures to the congregation. Consider who the minister is. That is, it was said this morning. It is the minister who is both the voice of God to the people, but also the minister is the voice of the people to God. Again, the voice of the minister is not merely just the voice of God to the people, but also it is the voice of the people to God. So the minister plays a a dual role. The minister speaks on the behalf of two parties. The minister, in many ways, is the mediator. The minister is that go-between, between the people, the congregation, and God, and God to the congregation. At the call to worship at the reading of the law, at the prayer of absolution, at the preached word, at the benediction. It is the minister who is the voice of God. It is the minister, as Pastor Antonio said this morning, doesn't become God, but more technically speaking, is an instrument being used, being being, uh, yielded by God. And at our time of public confession of sin, at our response to God's call to worship, it is then the minister who is the voice of the people that speaks back to God. William Godge, who was a member of the Westminster Assembly, uh, lays out the duties of the minister. He says in question 10, what duties are done by the minister? Number one, the reading of the word. Number two, preaching it. Number three, praying and praising God. Number four, administering the sacraments. And number five, blessing the people. Just as God has given the task to the minister to administer the Lord's Supper and preach the Word of God, which are both a means of grace, as to say, when the Word of God is being preached, as I said this morning, as the Word of God is being preached, it's not just merely a man coming up and preaching or saying words to you so that you may know something, but rather it is, or rather we should say more so, it is God giving to you grace. God giving to you grace. As it was said again this morning, how is it that you understand the very mysteries of the faith when your maybe unsafe family members don't? Well, one of the reasons you can you can give is by you attending the preached word and God heightening the faith within you. That supernatural theology that we all now possess being hyphened when the Word of God goes forth. And it is very much a means of grace, God giving us grace, but also at the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, where it is Christ giving Himself to us so that we can be like Christ. So if the Lord's Supper and if if the preached Word are a means of grace, then we also have to say that it is God that has given the minister alone the task to read the Scriptures and pray on the behalf of and for the people, which are also means of grace. So again, here's the argument. If the Lord's Supper is a means of grace, if the the preaching of the Word of God is a means of grace, if prayer is a means of grace, if the reading of the Word is a means of grace, and those things are only to be done by the minister, 
then it is the Word of God, or rather it is the minister that is only to read the Word of God to the congregation. This is said in Deuteronomy chapter 31, verses 9-13. through 13. So Moses wrote this law and gave it to the priests, the son of Levi, who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and to all the elders of Israel. Then Moses commanded them, saying, at, at the end of every seven years, at the time of the year of the release of the debts, at the Feast of Booths, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place in which He will choose, you shall read this law before all Israel so that they will hear it. We read the same thing in Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 2-5. through 5. In both cases, Moses specifically tasked the Levites, not the Israelites who are there, part of the congregation, or the people of the day, but rather the Levites to read the Word of God to the people. And in Nehemiah, it is Ezra the priest who gathers the people and reads and explains the Scriptures to the people. So we see that in Moses' time, but also in Nehemiah's time, the Word of God is given to a specific person to read the Word of God to the congregation. And likewise, we follow that same pattern where it is the minister of the Word of God not just some regular attendee. Think of it this way. We wouldn't have just anyone else come and minister the Word of God to us. Or would you? You wouldn't let anyone else or anyone just off the street or rather someone who is in a congregation who you don't know really anything about minister the Word of God to you. You wouldn't have them come and minister the sacrament of the Lord's Supper to you. So why is it any different than the reading of the Word of God? Number two, why, and you can ask questions, we can, ask, we can talk about that after service. Why do we need to ask for God to forgive our sins? Why do we need to ask God to forgive our sins? And the logic of this question is this, when we repent of our sins and believe upon Christ, does God even forgive the future sins that we will commit upon belief? Again, the moment you've believed upon Jesus Christ, does God even forgive not just your past sins, not just present sins, if you repented of them, but also future sins? Does God forgive future sins once you believed upon Christ? Has God not forgiven the sins that we will commit in the future? And the answer, saints, is God's forgiveness is a dynamic thing throughout our lives. In other words, while the justification that is that legal declaration that you are no longer a sinner but under the grace and headship of Christ, although that is a permanent state for every believer, in other words, you cannot lose your justification. From the moment you trust in Christ, that doesn't mean that God doesn't continue to forgive our sins, and it doesn't mean that we ought not to stop asking God to forgive us of our sins. Just because you are united to Christ, in Christ, sanctified in Christ, all those other things we say in Christ, doesn't mean that you are totally removed from asking God to forgive you of your sins, but also that you're totally removed from God actually forgiving your sins. Because we sin daily, we stand in daily need of God's forgiveness. But the question still remains, does God forgive future sins? So right now, if you were to ask for God to forgive you of your sin... 
If you were to say, God, also forgive me of future sins, does God actually forgive those future sins at that very present moment? Well, the answer is yes and no. The answer is yes and no. We can say that God will forgive our future sins, but only when that future sin is committed and we repent of it. Now, there's a lot going on in just that statement there. Saying that God will forgive our future sins only when that sin is committed, but also when we ask forgiveness of it. The Reform have made this distinction clear in their writings. Francis Tirison says, All our sins are remitted by God, whether past or present or future. Now, that kind of dis- this, uh, dismantles everything I've said, but notice he makes this nuanced statement. But with respect to the time in which they are committed, so that past and present are actually remitted, the future, when they are committed, will most certainly be remitted according to God's promise. In other words, God has promised you saints, this is glorious, God has promised you at this very moment, before you even commit that future sin you're going to commit, He has promised that He will forgive that sin when you commit it. That's a promise of God. You don't have to wonder, is God, will God forgive? He will forgive that sin. He also says, Churton, all sins, future as well as past, cannot be said to be remitted at some time and once formally and explicitly because they are not accidents or they are, they are not accidents of a non-entity. So long as the sin is not, punishment is not due to it. You're asking for God to forgive you of a, of a future sin, but you're not, you haven't been punished of, of that future sin yet. So what's the point? And since it is not due, it cannot be remitted. Besides, for the remission of sin, there is required a confession and repentance of it, which cannot be made unless it has been committed. What Tertian is saying then, saints, is if there is no sin to be committed, then there is no need to ask for forgiveness. Simply put, if there is no sin that you've committed, in the sense of actually committing that future sin, then what's the point of even even, uh, asking God to forgive your sins. You, you could say, Lord, um, when I do commit this sin again, or if I do commit this sin again, may you hold fast to your word to forgive me. But in that, what you're doing is you're pleading that God will hold fast to the oath and the and what He has sworn to Himself that He will forgive our sins. Not that God forgive me of this same exact sin because in the future when I do commit it, I don't got to ask forgiveness because I already asked for forgiveness a long time ago. Pearson Thomas Watson says, When I say God forgives us, uh, forgives all sins, I understand, the, I understand it of sins past or sins to come are not forgiven until they are repented of. Indeed, God has decreed to pardon them. And when He forgives one sin, He will in time forgive all. But sins future are not actually pardoned until they are repented of. It is absurd to think sin should be forgiven before it's committed. If all sins pass and to come are at once forgiven, then what need to pray for the pardon of sin? And lastly, A.W. Pink, if there is, uh, there is a real, very real sense in which our present and future sins are not remitted until we repent and confess of them. In other words, saints, we need to ask God to forgive us of our sins. 
it is of necessity that we ask the Lord to forgive us of our sins. Why? Because they haven't been forgiven yet. Maybe virtually, by the decree of God, God has promised to forgive them, but actually, really, God hasn't forgiven them. But in light of this, we can say it's great news, though, that God will forgive our sins. That God has promised to forgive our sins. We see this in 1 John 1.19. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous so that He will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we repent of our sins, He is faithful and He is just. And He will forgive us. There is a necessity then for us to repent of our sins. Even though, saints, we are no longer under Adam's guilt of sin, even though we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ, God no longer sees us as criminals, but rather as adopted sons and daughters of God, the fact still remains that we still sin and we need God's forgiveness. James 3.2 says, We all stumble in many ways. 1 John 1.8 If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And saints, at corporate worship, we corporately ask the Lord to forgive us. This is why it's so important for the minister to pray on the behalf of the people. A corporate and public confession of sin, but also a corporate asking of forgiveness. It is the minister speaking on your behalf. Yes, we do our own private time of, Lord, forgive me. But when a minister comes up, it is us collectively raising our voices so that God can incline His ear to hear us and so that He can forgive us. We corporally then, saints, ask God to forgive us. And the way we feel the full weight of our sinfulness is by the reading, or rather the minister reading to us the law of God. Again, why do we read the law of God? We all know the law of God. Because we want to and need to feel the full weight of our sin. How do we feel the full weight of our sin? Not just reflecting on the sin that we've done in the past throughout the week, but also it's seeing that we cannot uphold the righteous standard of God. I mean, think of the various scriptures that are filled, that speak of our sinfulness and our daily need of God's grace. Can't we just read Romans 3 and be done with it? Can't we all just say uh, uh, what Paul says? But remember, saints, what the law is. The law is our roadmap to holiness. The law teaches us how we are to be holy as our Holy Father. The law is good, but also the law tells us that we are not perfect people, as many of you know. The law reminds us that we cannot, in this life, perfectly obey God's law, not only outwardly, but also inwardly. And saints, as we hear God's law read to us, we hear of all the ways that we have failed our Lord in thought, in word, and in deed. There should be, in many ways, a, a dark cloud that hovers over you when you hear the law of God read to you because you understand that you have violated every single one of those commandments and that you, in and of yourself, cannot perfectly obey that righteous standard of God's holy law. In fact, this is what we find in Scripture, saints. The Scriptures command 
that in a worship service, we read the Scriptures and pray. In Nehemiah 8, the Israelites had returned from exile to establish the city of Jerusalem and the temple for worship. We see the great scribe Ezra came out and read aloud the law of God. And do you remember what the response was when the law of God was written? Nehemiah chapter 8, all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Now although you might not be outwardly weeping, are you inwardly weeping? Is there an inward sign of of contrition where within you, you understand how you have committed cosmic treason against your holy God? We see as the law was read, in Nehemiah's day, the people were humble and saints. Serious question that you have to consider. Even now is, are you humbled when you hear the minister read the Word of God to you, or rather the law of God to you, which is the Word of God? Are you humbled in any way, shape, or form? Are you reminded of your sinfulness and how much you need God to forgive you? We see that they all fell on their faces in a sign of contrition. That they were moved to tears of sorrow over their sin. Is there a movement of tears inwardly over your sin? We also see this in Ezra, or Ezra 9 through 10. In Nehemiah chapter 1, verses, through, uh, verses 4 through 11. Nehemiah 9. In Daniel chapter 9, verses 3 through 19. All provide examples of corporate prayers of confession. That this is what the church does. When we meet together, we read the scriptures. This is not a circumstance, not because we just want to read the law of God, because no other churches read the law of God, but rather this is what the Word of God tells us. That when we meet corporately, we are to hear the Word of God, and we hear the law of God read to us, and we so should be cut to the very marrow of our being, knowing that we cannot obey that holy and righteous law. But saints, what do we mean when we pray for God to forgive us of our sins? What does it mean for us to, to pray that God forgive us of our sins? Well, let's give me, let me give you four quick ones. First, to forgive sin means for God to take away iniquity. We see in Psalm 51.9, Hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquities. Sin here is likened to a man who, who carries a heavy burden which is about to sink him. And as he's going down, another comes and lifts the burden from his back. Saints, when God forgives us, He lifts the burdens of sins from our backs. Secondly, for God to forgive sin means for God to blot out our sin. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 25, I am He who blots out your transgressions. To blot out means for God to wipe out, to utterly destroy our sins. And saints, isn't this what we are asking for God to do in forgiveness? It is for God to destroy, to wipe out all of our sins. Thirdly, for God to forgive sin means for God to scatter our sins as a cloud. Isaiah 44.22 I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud. And your sins like mist return to me, for I have redeemed you. Here, sin is likened to a cloud, a very dense and thick cloud that can only be separated by the light of God's grace. 
And saints, when we ask for God to forgive us of our sins, we're asking God to break through and remove the clouds of our sins. God, may You shine light upon my life and remove all of the, the mist within my, within my life. And lastly, to forgive sin is for God to cast our sins into the depths of the sea. Mal, uh, Micah chapter 7, verse 19. And He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. In forgiveness of sin, saints, we're asking our God to bury our sins out of sight. We're asking our Lord to bury our sins out of sight. We're praying that God will be true to one of His promises of the new covenant. Hebrews 8.12 For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. This is what it means, saints, when we're asking God to forgive us of our sins. For God to be merciful to us and to not merely Him, but also us. To not allow the burden of our sins and the weight of our sins to continue to hold us down. And to continue to stop us from being all of what God has called us to be in Christ. Isn't that what sin does for many of us? It puts a heavy burden on us and in many ways stops our growth, stunts our growth. In us becoming all of what God has called us to be in Christ. The saints, this is what we do at a corporate worship service. That corporately, collectively, we're asking the Lord to remove us of our sins. But, but and also, it's not just merely us privately, but also it's any sin that comes about with regard to Reformation Bible Church as a whole. That us as a church, that we will be pure. That God will keep us. And God will sustain us. Now saints, what are the great approaches, or rather, what are the great benefits of corporate confession of sin? The great benefits of corporate confession of sin. Is is it something that we just do because God has called us to do it? Well, yes, that is true. But also, there is a great benefit for our spiritual souls when we corporately confess of our sin. Let me just give you a few before we close. Besides us obeying God's Word, we see that corporately confessing our sins strengthens the unity of the congregation. Corporately confessing our sins strengthens the unity of the congregation. Saints, when we confess our sins together, we are removing the lone ranger approach to Christianity that many think that the Christian life is. And many think that it's just me, my sin, and i got to deal with it. The saints' corporate confession of sin reminds us that we are not alone in this Christian walk. But the entire congregation, me, you, all of us, are struggling with this dying to sin, or dying to sin, dying to self thing. Every single one of us. There's not one of us that has graduated from dying to sin. There's not one of us that has all of the thorns from our sides removed. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, He who is alone with his sin is utterly alone. He who is alone with his sin is utterly alone. But saints, the great news of the Gospel of Christ is that you've been adopted into a family that you are not and not ever meant to be alone. 
and corporate confession of sin, saints, helps us see that our battle with sin is not merely our battle. If you're battling with sin, congregation, let me tell you now, it is not your battle to do alone. As it's been said many, many times from Pastor Antonio, it is us that hold hands with one another, that lock arms with one another. It is us to take the words of St. Paul and actually mean mean what we what what they say and, and do what they say rather. And St. Paul tells us in Galatians six two, bear one another's burdens and therefore fulfill the law of Christ. Yes, the the pride in us. We want to hold on to our sin. We want to and not in a sense of keep doing it, but in a sense of not letting anyone in on what we are doing. And that's our pride. That's Satan. That's the work of the devil. We should never be in a position to where we're, we are wanting to, to keep away from, from the saints of God what we are struggling with day by day. So, I, I, I encourage you, if you are dealing with some sort of sin, Speak to a brother and sister in Christ. Speak to your elders. Allow people into your life so that they can help you. And secondly, corporate confession of sin aids to clearing our conscience. Aids to clearing our conscience. David recognized this in Psalm 32. To abstain, uh, abstain from sin, or from, from confession rather, was to die a slow and painful death. He says in Psalm 32, verses 3-4, through When I kept silent, my bones grew away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. Here we see that the silence of not confessing our sins leads to suffering and death. While we sit in silence, saints, not wanting to confess our sin. And mind you, it's not really just Him contemplating on His sin, but it's Him not confessing His sin. You can contemplate on your sin, dwell on how or what led you to the sin, but you have to confess the sin. Run to the cross. Run to the mercy seat of Christ. But when you sit in silence and not confess your sin, it leads to suffering and death. But the moment we open our hearts and our mouths and confess our guilt... As David experienced, we receive healing. He says in verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you have forgave the iniquity of my sin. Saints, this is what we do at a corporate worship service. This is the reasoning behind a corporate confession of sin, but also a public reading of the law. And the great news of of all the saints is just as the minister prays on the behalf of the people for God to forgive us us of our sins, as it was said wonderfully last Sunday morning from Pastor Antonio, and then God comes in and He gives us that, that wonderful pardon that yes, we have been forgiven of our sins, solely and only on the basis of Christ's righteousness in Him alone. So saints, as it was said this morning, when the minister 
preaches the Word of God. It is a time for us not to step outside, not a time for us to close our eyes, not a time for us to think of all the things that we can do, that we ought to be doing. It's a time for us to focus because Christ is speaking to us. And also, when we hear the Word of God, when we hear the law read to us, it is God speaking to us. And then also, at that great pardon of sin, we know is the absolution of, 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 of sins and prayer, it is God once again reassuring that He has forgiven us of our sins. So saints, when it's time for us to confess our sins, again, it's not time for us to take a nap, but it's time for us to consider our sin. And consider what God has done, or rather what we have done, to disobey, in many ways, not walk in accordance to what it means to be a worthy receiver of the body and blood of Christ. I mean, this is one of the things that I think about throughout the weeks, saints, leading up to corporate worship, is am I living as one who is a worthy receiver of the body and blood of Christ? Have I lived this week as one who is a worthy receiver of the body and blood of Christ? Are my answers that I'm giving off to people and the way I present myself, is it showing myself that I am a worthy receiver of the body and blood of Christ? And saints, thank God that He will forgive us because He has promised that He will do so. So saints, let us now turn our attention to the Lord's Supper. A time for us to once again examine ourselves, ask the Lord to forgive us of our sins so that we can, with a clear conscience, come and receive the body and blood of Christ and that He can cleanse us, nourish us. So saints, let's take a moment. Let's examine ourselves and then let's fellowship with our Savior.